Norfolk Heritage Centre podcast this week, David Holgate Carruthers from the Museum of Norwich gives an insight into the life and times of Anna Sewell, the local author of the classic novel Black Beauty. Black Beauty has become a literary classic. It's a novel that everyone knows and that's been read all across the world. Now, maybe you've not read it, but chances are that you'll remember the adaptation that was on television, or maybe one of the films, which, as long as she was reaching you somehow, I don't think Anna Sewell really would have minded too much. Now, Black Beauty was Anna's only book. It was written towards the end of her life, and in many ways it's the culmination of her her lifetime's experiences. Uh, But it's a curious thing that she only wrote the one. The book isn't about Anna, and she doesn't feature in it. Uh, There's no real biographical element to it. But at the same time, I think we can tell quite a lot about her character from it, as well as the fact that towards the end of her life, writing it became quite a singular drive. Now the book... Ah, sorry. So, other than the author of a very successful book, who was Anna Sewell? Why did she write? And what's all the fuss about horses? On the 30th of March, 1820, at 26 Church Plain, Yarmouth, in a small 17th century cottage just off the market, really thin buildings kind of wedged between two others, Anna Sewell was born. Now at this point, Britain was transforming, shifting from a traditional agricultural focus to a machine-based economy. This was the Industrial Revolution, a period when people flocked to the growing cities Uh, in search of new kinds of work and technological change really shaped the landscape. What were traditionally rural areas became factory towns uh, as production was gathered into new centralised places. Now we describe all of this as I just have as a revolution Uh, but this is both accurate and misleading. Around 1750, 1760 This is generally accepted as the turning point uh, at which everything changed. But this abruptness was a result of much more gradual changes, where one thing would impact another, which in turn would enable something else. The famous Watt steam engine, for example, it was developed between 1763 and 1775, but it didn't appear out of the blue. It was an improvement on the design of Thomas Newcomen's Uh, atmospheric engine dating back to 1712. This in turn was an adaptation of er even earlier designs going back to the late 1600s. Each one more efficient and with wider application than the last. Steam power required coal, which required mining, which required infrastructure, which all required a workforce, who in turn required feeding. Each advancement is built on the back of another and leads to yet another change. The world didn't suddenly wake up one day to modern machinery and smog-filled cities, but the pace of change did increase. When Anna entered the world, there was a real sense that out of this gradual change, a new, radical, very modern world was forming. Now, take a moment to just imagine what that would have been like. For hundreds of years, most people had uh, worked small, individual plots of land for 
a privileged few. People worked for feudal lords, they had worked under the enclosure system that emerged in the 18th century. And all the while land had been power, influence, wealth, always owned by somebody else. Now it would be tempting to imagine that as capital emerged as the new dominant form of power, that there would be a certain degree of sort of democratisation. After all, the entrepreneurial emerging businessmen, those who provided the relentless drive of modernisation and innovation during this period, were in many ways a new kind of social class, those in the middle. This is still an idea tied to capital that underpins a lot of thinking today. The idea that there's a promise that with enough hard work and ingenuity uh, of great individual success. But for most people, most everyday people, the progress that this new world offered didn't extend to them. Industrialization may have shaped the world and into the modern one that we know today, but the reality of life in early modern Britain was backbreaking, dangerous work with long hours and little to no rights. The Industrial Revolution was driven by ambitious men utilizing new technologies, but it was a machine that was at the end of the day powered by animals and powered by people. This was the period that Anna grew up in, that she lived in, and that she wrote in. And the effects of rapid industrial modernization on society, on people, on all living creatures, is central to Anna's writing. It's a driving force behind it. So when Anna wrote Black Beauty, she was reflecting on a life lived during the 19th century, trying to do a bit of good for the animals that she cared about most. It was a book basically to try and get people to care, to be emotive, and also to see things Anna's way, which is a trait she probably got from her mother. Now the Sewell family were members of the local Society of Friends, also known as Quakers, who had been active in Norfolk since the mid-1600s, so just after, just after the Civil War. The Quaker faith began as a radical break from established worship, at its heart was this non-conformist idea that uh, you didn't need all of the traditional trappings of religion in order to, to practice a faith. You didn't need the clergy, you didn't need churches. That worship, in essence, could be a completely personal experience. Naturally, this kind of anti-establishment thinking, particularly after the country had been violently divided between parliamentarians and royalists, uh, was a dangerous thing, particularly from 1660, when Charles II was restored to the English throne, Quakers were aggressively suppressed, including here in Norwich. Meetings were broken up, members were thrown into Norwich Gaul. It wasn't until the late 1680s that the Quakers were able to establish themselves without fear of reprisal. Now, if you fast forward 120 years later, when Anna Sewell was born, the Society of Friends in Norfolk were well-established and well-respected. Anna's upbringing then, as well as her brother Philip's, was rooted in religious practice, in a community that valued proper behaviour and deplored excess. Growing up Quaker in the 19th century uh, meant following a very strict set of rules, basically. And it was frowned upon to read anything other than the Bible or other religious texts, 
uh, or to paint or to produce music. But of course it's also fair to say that every family behind closed doors has their own interpretation of rules and regulations and the Saul family were no different. Anna's mother Mary was devoutly religious uh, and this informed her personal morals without a doubt. And yet, and this is in part down to the Quaker tradition of questioning, of, of challenging establishment, she also held firm to her, her convictions and made sure to impart this trait to her children, Anna and Philip. To Mary, raising her children and schooling them at home for the most part was an education she tried to make, in her own words, stimulating, animating, affectionate. But it came as a surprise when Anna was a stubborn and outspoken child. Mary wrote herself that Anna needs to get the habit of a cheerful surrender of her own will and that she begins to be useful to her mother but is not tidy. Now this does seem slightly at odds because the Quakers themselves put a great emphasis on individual moral conviction and individual drive the duty to do something and, and act independently. And indeed, Anna as a child did just this. One day, it said, a man appeared at the Sewell Garden gate, wanting to retrieve a blackbird that he'd shot and had fallen into the garden. Now, apparently, Anna told him, she, so she's about seven at this point as well, she toddles up to this man holding a gun, uh, and Anna told him quite frankly and in no uncertain terms, no, the cruel man, thee shan't have it at all. Now this comes from Mary's own writing. This is her recounting this from her own reminiscences. Uh, so we should take it with a good bucket of salt because I can't quite imagine any child speaking quite like that. But it gets across the same idea that Anna, even from a really young age, couldn't tolerate cruelty and always tried to do something about it. So Mary may have been unhappy with Anna's behaviour at times, um, and Anna never liked the stern silence of Quaker meetings as the congregation would sit in complete silence and contemplation. But it seems that it was precisely the kind of independent, inquisitive mind, critical mind as well, that Mary set out to foster in the first place. It's also worth mentioning at this point that despite Mary's own piousness, that she herself admitted that as a young girl she found exactly the same thing as Anna in those very quiet meetings. That the silence of those meetings could feel oppressive, that the slightest shift of a silk dress or the creaking of a floorboard would sound absolutely deafening. Now what Mary would do as a young girl, she'd sit there and recite the poems of Lord Byron in her head. Now we don't know which ones, but I like to think that it was some of his more sort of risque lines. It's quite a pleasing image. Lines like, Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more roving by the light of the moon. I just love the idea of thinking what Mary might have got up to by the light of the moon. Now, both Anna and Mary had a complicated relationship with faith. Mary would eventually go on to leave the Society of Friends, and Anna herself repeatedly experiences periods of what she calls darkness coinciding with what she describes as religious doubt. Neither of them ever lost faith. That's an important thing to, to point out, but they were constantly questioning religious structures. Mary wrote herself, 
I have greatly feared that we are degenerating either into careless or formal professors who make clean the outside of the cup but leave the interior de defiled with worldly mindedness, uncharitableness and greediness after wealth. I fear that our bonnets and coats which mark us out from the world increase our pride rather than our humility. So you can tell she was a fiery woman. She wrote this as early as 1826. So that's when Anna's just a young girl. Um, and what happened ten years later was that Mary was baptised and withdrew from the Society of Friends in 1836. And what follows is a long period of spiritual longing for Mary. She never really lost her Quaker faith. She never lost her roots. Um, and she says herself that she ceased being a friend in name only. But this must have been a troubling time of exploring other denominations. Now, for many of us today, this might seem, you know, like quite a minor significance. But particularly at the time, it was a bold decision for Mary to make. It would have been judged very harshly um, by many within a very tight-knit community and caused family tensions and divides and singled out Mary as a woman who was putting herself before the needs of the community and of the needs of her family. Now today, we live in a much more secular society. Of course, plenty of people still practice religion, but for most, religion isn't so closely woven into everyday life. God and country in the 19th century was everything. It was tied to a very strict sense of individual self and duty. The tension, I think, for Mary was very Quaker. Although she left the Society of Friends, her drive was to find a satisfying individual experience of divinity that spoke to her on a personal level. Now, I'm not religious, so I find this quite hard to imagine uh, or to identify with. But I have a lot of respect for a woman who, at the time, and in the face of 19th century ideas of what a woman should be or shouldn't be, um, who forged her own path. So despite a lot of progress, society today still holds quite rigid views of what women can and can't do. Um, but in the 19th century, divisions in gender roles were even starker. What the Victorians called separate spheres meant that as the fight for women's rights ramped up, publications like the following were all too common. Now this is from an early Victorian pamphlet entitled Woman's Rights. The right to be a comforter when other comforts fail. The right to cheer the drooping heart when troubles most assail. The right to train the infant mind to think of heaven and God. The right to guide the tiny feet, the path our saviour trod. The right to solace the distressed, to wipe the mourner's tear. The right to shelter the oppressed and gen gently chide each fear. The right to be a bright sunbeam in high or lowly home. The right to smile with loving gleam and point to joys to come. The right to fan the fevered brow, to ease the troubled mind, and gently tell in accents low all those who seek shall find. Such are the noblest woman's rights, the rights which God hath given the right to comfort man on earth and smooth his path to heaven. Now that makes me angry. So God knows how it makes most of you in this room feel. But this is typical of the time. It's a pamphlet, ironic title and all, 
in response to direct response to suffrage, saying that a woman's rights are to stay at home, be a gentle beacon of grace and comfort, and to dote both on men and on children. This was the world that Anna lived in, and I think it makes it all the more impressive when we see how Mary did exactly what she felt was right, and also when we see who Anna grew up to be. So Anna too struggled, like her mother, to find a way to practice her faith in a way that satisfied her. On the 11th of May, 1838, this is just two years after her mother left the Quaker community, this was recorded in a Quaker meeting. Anna saw, this meeting believes it is right at the present time to inform men friends, private labour having been unavailing, that our young friend Anna Sewell has attended our meetings for worship but seldom since her residence among us, that she has frequented other places of worship and has recently submitted to water baptism. Shock horror. Anna was, however politely, expelled from the Society of Friends for what to me seems like quite a modern personal quest. She was exploring her faith. Now, both mother and daughter, we can take from this, were strong, very independent women. Now, they're probably opinionated to the point where they could be a real pain sometimes, but two women who made it their life's goals to do good, to encourage the spread of good, regardless of what anybody thought, I think are to be admired. Now, at this point, it's worth mentioning that although we'd like in Norwich to claim Anna Sewell as a local author, she didn't live in Norfolk for most of her life. She was born in Yarmouth, but the Industrial Revolution that had such an impact on so many lives also shaped the Sewell's lives. So many industrialists found their fortunes as trade boomed and new industries flourished. There was an increase in entrepreneurial opportunity, uh, and also in the growth of infrastructure needed for the modern world. So that's banks, insurance companies, railways, uh, the civil service. Anna's brother Philip went on to be successful in Spain as an engineer, building the great railways that would stretch across the country. But Anna's father, Isaac, was not so fortunate. Having lost his partnership in the draper's shop in Yarmouth that he set up in, Isaac and his family moved to London shortly after Anna's birth. So she was only a little toddler at that point. The Quaker clothing shop that he opened there also wasn't a success. He hadn't known at the time that uh, just around the corner on one of the main streets there was already a well-established Quaker clothing shop. So he quite quickly went out of business. So in 1822, he'd lost everything. Although each time that businesses failed, the family always managed to avoid total ruin. From this point on, Anna's family would relocate several times uh, as Isaac moved between different professions, including banking and brewing, uh, which in itself became problematic when the Quakers began, including Anna and Mary, quite vocally to support the temperance movement. Uh, yeah, at that point, Isaac had to stop brewing and go back into banking because he wasn't allowed to make beer anymore. They were never destitute, though, through sheer luck and the help of family, uh, but for much of Anna's childhood, the family experienced financial hardship. And it wasn't only her father's financial struggles that caused problems for Anna and her family. 
Isaac would eventually, before the brewing, find some success, as I say, as a bank manager. And between that and the support of family and Anna's brother, the family coped, and eventually, at times, they were, they were comfortable. But what really, really made a massive impact on Anna's life was that when she was a young girl, maybe about 12, 14, this is just after she'd started going to school and wasn't being homeschooled anymore, she was running home from lessons one day in the pouring rain next to a steep bank, and she slipped. She fell down the bank and seriously damaged at least one of her ankles, but probably both. Now, we don't know the exact nature of her injury, but what we do know for sure is that it marked the beginning of a really long period of ill health that lasted for her entire life. And it was made no better by the various 19th century medical treatments that she received, or suffered, depending on your point of view, um, because they often did more harm than good. She was bled with leeches. She likely had her ankles reset, which at the time the doctors didn't know what they were doing, and you've got two dislocated ankles, that's not going to make things any better. Um, and as a young woman, when she was a little bit older, she actually went on to travel around Europe to take up the water cures, which in the 19th century were to, well, she was in the German mountains, breathing in the fresh air and being subjected to treatments with very cold water. So that's where you'd bathe in cold water, you'd drink it, uh, you'd have cold compresses tied to your chest. It's, it all sounds rather grim, to be honest. Interestingly, though, when she was there, there was another 19th century writer, Tennyson, who was also at the same, same place having the same treatment for his illnesses, and they became friends. Now maybe this is what sparked her interest in writing, because Anna after that point was famous for saying how she loved Tennyson's poetry. And this was then fostered by Mary's own example, because Mary had found some small success writing herself, writing for children and mostly poetry with quite a predictably strong moralist bent. It was quite severe stuff. But interestingly, we do know that Anna began to edit her mother's work. So from being quite a young woman, she was always involved with writing. So that when you think about it, Black Beauty didn't just pop out of nowhere. Anna's accident and subsequent damaging treatments left her physically disabled. She was often unable to walk. Her life is peppered by instances of ill health and she's frequently housebound. Now this does lead to something of a positive though, strangely. Because she was so frequently housebound, um, and after Isaac and Mary had found some success and they had a little bit more money, um, Anna was able eventually to keep a horse and chase, initially a pony and trap. This meant that she had an in-depth knowledge of horses, how to look after horses, how to drive them, and how to get them to do what she wanted without being cruel to them. So without that, strangely, we probably never would have got Black Beauty because she wouldn't have had that hands-on experience with horses for such an extended period of time. Now, when reading a book, what do we take from it? Thinking about the author, what do we take from reading her life? The first obvious answer is one that Anna herself is very clear about. Black Beauty itself was a book to encourage sympathy uh, for horses in a world where they were used as tools, 
extensions of the machinery at the time and they were very disposable. The result of the book was an undeniable impact in terms of animal welfare, of shaping the ideas of the general public uh, and, and influencing public opinion. That impact is amazing. Now maybe organisations like the RSPCA uh, would have continued to grow regardless, they probably would. But this book was certainly of help in creating an atmosphere of empathy. Uh, and Anna made expert use of the sentimental Victorian style to do that. But is that all that we can take from it? The messages of the book obviously can have a wider meaning than practical 19th century horse care, as a kind of treatise maybe on the importance of empathy between living things, human or animal. But what about Anna's life? Are there any points that seem much closer to us uh, than Victorian England usually does? Popular thought at the time had begun to develop the notion that each man was responsible for his own success and that it could be achieved through hard work, self-reliance and prudence. On the one hand, this did help to dismantle a historically class-based society where the aristocracy and the crown owned land and everybody else worked it. But it also gave rise to ideas about the deserving and the undeserving, the respectable and the rough around the edges. Inequalities became more about morals than about the realities uh, of somebody's position, how they got there. And in many ways, this is a change that still persists today in how we think about those who have less than us. This 19th century individualism, though, at its roots, was also framed around men, but it crossed those separate spheres that I spoke about earlier uh, in the pressures women were put under to conform. One of the points that kept coming up again and again as I was researching Anna's life was the issue of Anna's mental well-being. Throughout her life, there are points where she becomes unproductive, reclusive. Her mother, Mary, writes about these periods of Anna's life as a symptom of her injury. And Anna herself tends to contextualise things in terms of religion. Now, of course, we can't say what was actually wrong with Anna at this point. Uh, we can't look back to that time of certainty. Uh, and we have to be careful of any sort of retrospective diagnoses. Some writers, biographers, have argued that Anna probably had lupus. Another one argued that she uh, had a sort of degenerative muscle-wasting disease. But the important thing is that we don't know. What we do know is that Anna's difficulties are framed in spiritual religious discussion. And she was surprisingly open about her feelings. She wrote in a diary, I thank thee, Lord, for my lameness. I am sure it is sent in love, though it be a trial. I should without it have too much pleasure in the flesh and have forgotten thee. Now it seems to me what Anna Saul is doing there is trying to recon uh, reconcile her faith with her experiences. And she was expressing that in a way that used the language of the times. The guilt and the heartbreaking way that she seems to uh, blame herself for what's happening to her physically appears quite close to the stigma associated with mental health, at least to me. Stigma still exists today where people who struggle with mental health can often feel that to talk about their experiences will be met with fear, confusion from others. 
And it's common that these feelings are internalised. They become the fault of the individual and often felt as shame. Of course, I, I can't know for sure. But to me it seems that what Anna's life tells us a lot about the 19th century and the realities of life at the time, and whilst I've only touched on it here, thinking about her life shows us a strong woman who struggled under contemporary pressures, but nonetheless managed to do a lot of good in her life, as I think that we all can, uh, and I think that that's something worth remembering and admiring. Thank you. <laughs> Does anybody have any questions? She's buried at Lamas, which is uh, in Norfolk. It's not too far from Lamas. It's L A double M A S. Lamas. Lamas. Yeah. Uh, yeah, which is near Buxton, and there's a Quaker cemetery there, which is where she's buried. She died at Quaker. She did. Yeah. Well, she was expelled from the Quaker faith, and her mother left it. But both of them, in their own stubborn way considered themselves Quakers, you know. That's, that's the sort of traditions that they followed. That's the way that they sort of found their moral compass. For both of them, I think they were just dissatisfied with religious structures. Um, they thought it would be a sort of, should be a sort of purer thing that they were, they were going for. Why was that choice to bury there then? the connection with Lammas? So the connection with Lammas is, so Anna was born in Yarmouth. Yeah but the Sewell family was spread all across Norfolk. So she had, I think, thinking off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it was her grandparents that lived in Buxton. So Anna, for quite long periods of her childhood, would occasionally travel to stay at the farm at Buxton um, and be in nature and around animals. Um, and Lammas is, is quite nearby. And it was the Quaker cemetery. Yeah, the farm connection might make reference to the use of the book then. Quite possibly, and it's so also... London doesn't make you think about no, well, I, what she was writing, does it? To, to me, I think what London did, and you've got to think at the time that they were li living in quite a sort of dirty, run-down street, opposite a gin house, surrounded by poverty, um, and that really would have made an impact on Mary, certainly. Um, and I think that shows, because as Anna gets older, uh, she often joins Mary in doing a lot of charitable work, um, reaching out to people in similar situations. And as a child, when, when they lived there, was famous for giving out her food to people that she decided needed it more than her. Um, but yeah, and then there's also the connection of Anna's brother, Philip, because Black Beauty was written in Old Catton. Anna Saul came full circle back to Old Catton at the end, and that's where she wrote it. Um, and her brother at the time had also returned to the country and was living at, well, Sewell Barn, which today is the Sewell Theatre. So the building, the barn that the Sewell Theatre is in, and that was in the 1980s that that was sort of, the, the co local community got the funds together to, to create that theatre. Um, but that's in the building that used to be Philip's barn, where he kept his horses. And interestingly, just trying to remember the name of it, hang on. Yeah, interestingly, in that very same barn, which Anna undoubtedly would have seen this horse sometimes, was a horse named Bessie, which was a large black horse that Philip would have driven in his cart to the house in Old Catton where Anna was writing um, every day, almost. So she would have seen a big 
Black Horse while she was writing Black Beauty and that lived in the building that is today a theatre. Um, you mentioned her father as a sort of the bread, you know, and his role as the breadwinner. To an extent, but, yes. Um, was he actually reasonably liberal? Because, I mean, if Mary, his wife, was able to explore, as she obviously did, um, you know, her faith and her social yes. you know, status, would indicate that either he'd sort of given up on her, uh, <laughs> yeah. or, or that, um, you know, was he at all so proactive in um, Yeah, there, there's two things to bear in mind here. The first is that Mary had a much stronger force of character than Isaac did, from what I've read, and from her writings in particular. So I don't imagine he'd have much chance of standing up to her anyway, even if he did disagree. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, th I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the Quakers at the time, which somewhat unusually for the 19th century, did actually encourage women to join in in business, to, to work, and to be on a, an equal footing with men. Um, which I think when you think about those Quaker roots is probably leads directly into that feeling both that Mary and Anna had that they could be these strong independent individuals and, and act as they wanted to. So that would have been in the sort of general rules of the Quaker community something that Isaac should encourage. Uh, they did talk about it together and Isaac was understanding. There's a, Attention there's an, please, this is a staff and customer announcement. There's an entry in we uh, We're currently Mary's diaries which talks about her having a conversation with, with Isaac about this and she does write about this how he's incredibly tender about it, very kind. But at the same time, I do think that Mary would have ploughed ahead and done it anyway because she had that very strong sense of conviction. Yeah. And also, I mean, in the book about beauty, Mm. There are plenty of male characters who are given quite a bit of space. I think that, I, I mean, it's years and years since I've actually been here. But yeah. there aren't a great many female characters, so presumably she was interactive as she moved around the country with various levels of society. Absolutely. Um, um, one of the first responses to the book um, when it was first published, and Anna Saul died in 1878. So she only lived for about two or three months after the book was published. So she only saw its very first degree of success. But one of the very common responses to it was, how can a woman possibly know this much about horses? She was met with disbelief. Um, but yes, she spent her time traveling, working with a lot of different people. She worked as a school teacher for a while. Um, and she had, both her and Mary, had a lot of contact with people at all levels of society. Um, largely through their charitable work. So even though when Anna wrote Black Beauty in Old Catton, and at this point she's almost completely bedridden, she has a huge wealth of life experiences um, and a lot of, like I said earlier, a lot of hands-on experience with caring for horses um, that she draws on to, to create this book. And that's really what I want to stress, I think, amongst other things, is that this book didn't just appear. Uh, and some people have argued that it was her mother that wrote it, and I, I don't believe that for a second, because they are very, very different styles of writing. Um, but yes, I think it was... Anna had always wanted to do good and to make an impact, and it was at that point towards the end of her life where she turned around and said, well, this is what I'm going to do. 
and she did. She drew all of that experience despite intense physical pain and, and sort of this mental cloud that she had hanging over her, uh, which I think it makes it all the more Im impressive that she, she managed to write it. Yeah, you're very welcome. Can I ask one thing about the copyright of the book? Yes. So if she wrote the book just before she died, do you bear in mind the fact that the royalties for Peter Pan still paid for Great Ormond Street, and the royalties for Beatrix Potter are still owned by Frederick Ward. Well, this is an interesting point because Anna the book through Mary's contacts. So Mary was a published author, like I said, of children's poetry mostly, um, and she had connections to Gerald's, which was at the time the publisher and, and great printer. So. In Norwich, she, she went through the London office, but it was uh, connected with the printers and the publishers, Jowells in Norwich at the time, um, which is why our exhibition at the museum, those paintings that we've got of Cecil Alden, were discovered by Jowells themselves and loaned to us. Um, but in terms of the royalties, it was bought at the time for 30 or 40 pounds, which is not a small sum. But if you think the levels of success it's achieved, um, it, you know, that, that is a very small amount of money when you think about that. But because at the time, 19th century, Anna died unmarried and her mother died not too long after her, that um, the rights of the book were essentially in question. Um, Jowells owned them at the time. And this is also one of the things that... Um, enabled a man called Joseph T. Angle, who was an American, to do what he did with the book, which, and he justified this by saying, I, uh, you know, that nobody has any claim to the rights, so I'm able to do this. He pirated the book in America. Uh, he worked for the Humane Society in America, which was essentially the American equivalent of the RSPCA at the time. Uh, and he took the book and molded it into essentially a, a pamphlet, a sort of instructional pamphlet, a booklet to instruct people on the correct way to look after and to care for animals. Mm -hmm. And then it had Black Beauty sort of hidden inside it. And it said on the front, uh, Black Beauty and his companions, the Uncle Tom's Cabin of the Horse, was the American equivalent. And we actually have that on display, kindly lent to us by the, the library stores. We have that on display at the museum at the minute. Yeah, it's, it's just off one of the other rooms, um, off the courtyard. Um, but yeah, he was able to do that. And I don't think Anna would have actually minded, because he didn't make money off of this. He was doing it to, to spread the word. Uh, and actually, without him doing that, it's unlikely that it would have had such an international success so quickly. Um, but yes, he was able to do that, because the rights were unclaimed or in question. I'll answer the question. Thank you, Robert. No, no, you're right. Anybody else got any questions? No? Well, thank you for coming along. It's been a pleasure talking to you all. And, uh, yeah, do pop along to the museum if you haven't already. When does the exhibition finish? It's the, yeah, it's next weekend. So the last day you could see it would be a week today. Is that right, Jenny? Yes, a week today. Well, thanks very much.